edition of the Dean's Corner. We're chatting today uh, with an expert in the field of cybersecurity uh, and data privacy law, our very own associate professor, Anthony Haynes. Uh, he serves as the Associate Dean for Strategic Initiatives. And very importantly, he also is the Director of Cybersecurity and Data Privacy uh, Law here at Albany Law School. Uh, we're so excited to, to chat with you today. Uh, professor. Uh, just to get started, uh, there's been an awful lot of information and talk about artificial intelligence. Uh, there's, a, you know, it's, it's in the field, it's in our homes, and we're at this point where we really need to start addressing the ways that bias goes into our AI programming and operations. Uh, so I was wondering if you could uh, start us off with that. Um, how is it that uh, bias is even an issue when it comes to artificial intelligence? That's a great question, Keith, and thank you for the graceful introduction. My um, brother is a computer science uh, professor at West Point, and I once was a professor at computer science at the Air Force Academy many years ago. And so when I was talking to my brother about the fact that algorithms and computer software can be biased, he thought I was crazy. He said, Anthony, how could that actually be the case? And so I had to explain to my computer scientist brother the argument for why it's an issue. And so this is, this is a hard question to get across. And what we discovered, um, initially the, the, the exploration and questioning was conducted by data scientists and computer scientists who are looking at the use of algorithms is that the, the, the systems that we have in place replicate our pre-existing human culture. And so if they're pre-existing organization or cultural norms include bias or prejudice, then the algorithms will very often faithfully replicate those pre-existing norms. And so what's really confusing, particularly for people within the IT community, is this idea that, well, software can't discriminate, code can't be biased. And then you have to show, well, when you make a decision, the effects of the decision can have disparities and have different outcomes on different populations impacted by the algorithm. Mm, that is fascinating. So we're really just borrowing from past practices of exclusion, segregation of racism, uh, the way it's used in language and putting it right into our otherwise neutral uh, and objective AI systems. What are some examples uh, of how this plays out in the real world? Sure. And, and basically, in every walk of life, you will find an example. So since we're coming from a law school and we're comfortable with the law, I'll use one from the legal context. So in the context of criminal justice and in sentencing, every jurisdiction will have some version of a predictive algorithm to assess the likelihood that a convict will commit a future crime. What is the risk of recidivism? And so a popular tool to do this is called Compass. And so what it does is it takes a variety of factors 137 factors, and then it makes a output score from one to 10, one being a 10% chance of committing a crime in the next five years and 10 being a 100% chance of committing a crime in the next five years for each particular uh, defendant or convict at the time of sentencing. And so the thought is, well, that's great. We're taking out the subjectivity of the human beings and we're going to have this objective system making a score. Isn't that wonderful? Well, there's any number of critiques. A few of them include this. 
the entity that's determining how to answer those 137 inputs is usually the probation officer or the court psychologist or the prosecutor, and is not the defense attorney for the client. So that's the first issue. Now, some of the metrics might be subjective, such as, um, do you believe a hungry person has the right to steal? If you answer yes to the question, or if the probation officer answers yes for you, then that might convey a lack of respect for property, that you have a criminal mentality, when in reality, you're thinking, well, if I can starve or not starve, I'm going to choose not to starve, right? So there's this idea of a, of a judgment here. But some of the factors are objective, such as, have you been arrested for a crime in the past? And it turns out, when data scientists analyze all these factors, they found that only two of the factors actually mattered, and in fact, gave a better prediction accuracy than the larger number of factors. The two factors that mattered were the age and the prior arrests. It turns out that older people tend to get arrested and to be convicted of crimes at lower rates than younger people. And it turns out that people who have been arrested for a crime in the past are more likely to be arrested for a crime in the future and to be convicted in the future. And so you would think, well, these two data points appear to be relatively neutral. How could there be any racial implications or gender implications in these data points? Well, it turns out um, that on the issue of prior arrests, communities of color have historically been over-policed. So simply by living in a particular zip code, and remember our zip codes are heavily segregated, means that you have a higher likelihood of being arrested. So on this quality here, it's actually an indirect proxy for race in many jurisdictions. And so it's facially neutral. Prior arrest doesn't say anything about race, but the way that that data gets created shows potentially a racially disparate effect on policing and therefore an arrest. That's on the input side. So the next issue is the algorithm itself. Well, how does it weight all these various inputs? And so there's a big question about who gets to determine those weights and whether they are legitimate. And because these are trade secrets, under trade secret law, the company has a right to keep it confidential or secret. And so if you are defended in a criminal case, you have the right to confront witnesses against you. So you would think the use of a secret algorithm to create a score on your likelihood of committing another crime, your recidivism risk, would be something you could confront at sentencing. But under trade secrets law, the company has the right to keep it secret. So maybe there's an issue here with the proprietary nature of the algorithm itself, this, this opaque black box. And then finally, on the outputs. So you get this score here that has a number between 1 and 10. And so when you ask the company how they measure success, they will say, we define fairness as success. And we define fairness as success as being the overall predictive accuracy of the algorithm. So hypothetically speaking, maybe it has an overall accuracy of 65%. So in almost two thirds of the cases, if it says you're likely to be a future criminal, it's correct, you are in fact a future criminal. And maybe it shows that for black defendants and for white defendants, the difference in predictive accuracy is pretty close, 65.4 versus 65.5, they're close together. And so they'll say, well, look, we have succeeded. And the issue for us, at least in the criminal context, is that our goal is not to unjustly harm 10 innocent people to catch a single criminal, but the invert, which is to potentially release 10 guilty individuals so avoid harming one innocent person, which means from a fairness point of view, your goal is not to have predictive accuracy, but to minimize error rates. And this is the question of when do you have false positives and when do you have false negatives? So yeah. in the 
prediction algorithm, what happens when it says for an individual, well, I forecast you as having a 10 out of 10 likelihood of committing a future crime and you do not. That's yeah. your false positive. Or yeah. conversely, I say you have a one in 10 chance of committing a future crime and you do. That's the false negative. Well, you would want from a notion of fairness that the rates of false negatives and false positives to be about the same across different populations. So it should be about the same for blacks and for whites. It turns out with Compass that they are not about the same. That in fact, the likelihood of being labeled as a highly likely to commit a future crime if you're black is twice as high as that for a white person. And then you do not commit a future crime. So we're falsely forecasting future criminals, um, people who are actually law-abiding citizens in the future, is much more likely for Blacks and for whites. And yeah. on the idea of false negatives, you're much yeah. more likely, if you're white, to be forecasted as not to being a future criminal, but actually committing a crime in the time frame in question, and you're much less likely in the case of being Black. So these yeah. error rates saw a great disparity in the system. And so the company would say, well, look, we're fair because we're successful, because we have an overall predictive accuracy. And then the critics would say, well, no, you're unfair because the error rates are so disproportionate yeah. that you're treating different populations unequally. Yeah. So it's, it, this, is, this just sounds like red flags uh, all over the place in both the way these systems are created and how we trust them, uh, right, because of how objective we think they are. So I want to thank you for joining us today for the very informative discussion, uh, uh, Professor Anthony Haynes. Um, we hope to have you again soon, uh, and thank you very much. Thank you so much.